people have gotten really good at, at communicating some information in a really um, sort of, I think, uh, easy, easily digested, you know, quickly digested, pleasant way. And sort of one of the things I actually just read just a couple days ago was helping parents reframe, you know, kids' desire for autonomy as this sort of negative um, experience, right? Like they're being disobedient or they're somehow being bad or what happened to my kid that used to do everything I said, you know, to do or most of the time and really reframing this as like healthy, normal positive development that kids want to take more autonomy in their lives. Welcome to How to Have Kids Love Learning, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators that help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon and serve as executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and become self-directed learners through project-based storytelling. Teaching students to become effective communicators is at the heart of JLI's work. Well, welcome back to our podcast uh, series. Today we have uh, Professor Nicole Kelly. Um, her research interests are eating behaviors, body image, uh, beliefs, uh, weight stigma, chronic disease uh, risk. And uh, these are topics that she and I have talked be about before. And I wanted to invite her um, to chat uh, because there's, uh, you know, the, the thing that really caught my attention and probably caught yours as well was a, just a relatively recent um, announcement uh, by the Seattle School uh, District uh, Public Schools, um, that they're suing the tech industry. I mean, who would have ever met, you know, thought that that would happen, especially in the backyard of Amazon and, and Microsoft. Um, but, but, um, but yes, I, I, I did want to chat with you because um, you've been studying this area for some time, and I think for parents and educators who, um, who, you know, listen to our podcast. Um, you know, there continue to be lingering concerns about about this whole area of influence from social media. Um, what do you find in your in your own research as it relates to? I know eating disorders is a specific area of yours, interest area of yours. Yeah, and th this is really interesting to me because given my age, right, I'm part of a a cohort of people who grew up with very little of this and, and feel really grateful that my life was not documented <laughs> on <laughs> over social media or through audio or video materials of any kind. And I just got to sort of, you know, live and learn <laughs> as I was a kid and through college. And so I think in some ways I'm, I was for a long time, a part of the culture who felt like maybe none of this is good. Maybe like, cell phones should go away. Like, what is this social media stuff? It seems, you know, um, not helpful in terms of uh, kids' growth and development and social connections. And it, it's sort of um, detracting from these, what were very normal developmental experiences and growth for, for me. And I think I find myself uh, sort of over that and now more on the side of while technology is amazing, we, we need to be careful and thoughtful about how we actually engage uh, with things like social media. And the research is, 
is just as nuanced. So for example, um, there's some research that suggests that social media, things like Facebook and Instagram and TikTok are wonderful ways for kids to feel connected, especially if they live in you know, rural communities, for example, they can be in their homes and talking with kids all over the place uh, while you know, playing video games. And that can be uh, very connecting for some people. Um, and this is true for highly minoritized or stigmatized groups as well. There, there's a lot of opportunity through some social platforms to find social support and to talk with other people going through their experiences and to feel um, a lot of connection that way. Our work in the disordered eating field, we're a little more worried. Um, there is fairly robust research linking just sort of time spent on social media with disordered eating. So things like, you know, um, more extreme dieting, uh, binge and losing, losing control over eating, feeling really unhappy with the way they look. And in some ways, this is pretty intuitive, right? Because social media is just bombarded with images of sort of what we would call like ideal ways of looking, right? Um, the ideal body types, the ideal skin tones and colors and hairstyles and things like that. And so it's only kind of natural to think that people who see those things a lot, um, you know, leave feeling pretty unhappy with like the reality um, of their appearance and the very real normal variations, right? In the human sort of uh, appearance and body shapes and sizes and whatnot. Um, but the research, now that we're like, uh, learning how to better study things like social media use, we're learning that it, it is quite nuanced. And it seems to be the case that certain types of social media behaviors like photo editing and sharing or purposefully going online to post a, a photo of yourself and look for you know positive feedback from your friends, your family. It, it's these types of behaviors, you know, seeking out things like fitspirational content, you know, to help you stay really dedicated to your very extreme diet, you know, to obtain a certain body type. These types of behaviors um, are generally um, being linked to some pretty harmful outcomes, not just in the eating disorder uh, kind of realm, but things like depression, anxiety, self-esteem, stuff like that too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny, you're talking about, you, you know, your your own your own past. And, and when I think about it, I, you know, with us both teaching college students who are in their, you know, um, entering into their, their 20s, um, I've had students say to me, I feel like I've been robbed of my innocence. You know, like college used to be an opportunity to kind of have a fresh start. Mm -hmm. But if you're entering college and all of a sudden every awkward photo that your, your mom ever took of you or that people took of you with braces and whatever else is available on social media, you're not getting that fresh start. And so college yeah. becomes becomes a different experience than it was for either you or, or, or myself, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I just wonder what's the, what's, what kind of loss can be associated with that. Um, and the, the, and then the, the other thing that I speak to sometimes is just, I mean, you're out in your places and you're at a mall or whatever, and everyone seems to be I, like, I wonder if we're going to be losing a, a generation of, of photographs that aren't posed. So if mm -hmm. your lips aren't, pursed and you're, you know, you're not smiling a certain way or whatever else, the, the whole idea of what we used to have is just candid photos of you, you know, mm -hmm. blowing out candles on your birthday and all those kinds of things. Yeah. And of course, I guess I sound like an old fuddy-duddy because every generation 
you know, uh, thinks that, you know, that theirs was the best, you know, but, but I do, I do, I do wonder, you know, just about the kind of pressure that we're putting on, on, uh, and young people are putting on themselves to, to uh, lead, lead these ideal, uh, you know, sort of perfect uh, representations in public, um, yeah. you know. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I share the same concerns. I have a seven-year-old daughter and it's become really evident to me how important it is for me to create a sense of consent with her. Like she has full say on videos and pictures that include her, whether they end up on social media or get shared with family over text. And um, she's actually kind of demanded that from me, which I think is mm. pretty cool and would love, it, it only kind of seems fair and right to do that with each other and with, with friends, with these college students you're describing is to sort of create that culture so people feel like they have some autonomy because while I think what you're describing isn't well researched because this stuff is tricky. It's cr tricky to catch, to figure out how to best measure these types of things on a day-to-day -day basis with human beings. And, um, but I do know that not having a sense of autonomy is not good for people. Right. Mm -hmm. So feeling like they're sort of being policed or, I mean, the whole the the controlling parent doesn't doesn't seem to work, at least from what I have <laughs> learned and and seen. It, it, often, what happens is that you know they set up dummy accounts, and you know you think you're tracking what they're doing and everything mm -hmm. else, and and, uh, and it actually almost may backfire. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, and just and 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 you know, encouraging people to in include each other in decisions around things like posts, right? So that people feel like if they don't want some experience that they've had captured forever on the internet, that they should have some say, you know, in that happening. Mm -hmm. um, we've been talking a lot in the College of Education about, the, about how to parent in this digital age too. And mm -hmm. I think you were just kind of alluding to that. And um I think what as are you, what are you what kind of discussions are you having? What are you just what are you figuring out? Yeah, I think when we when we didn't grow up with this as such as myself, I think some of us feel like we're unprepared or ill ill equipped to kind of help. Um, yeah, just parent generally around kids using cell phones and engaging with social media. And I'm not an expert in this area, but I, I'm I have people around me who are. And generally, what they keep saying is. It, the the skills they encourage are really no different than the skills that we would use in any other context. We just don't have a lot of confidence in using them, right? So the idea of like appropriate limits and, um, you know, maybe that means like not always having access to their phone and their social media, but having rules around the house around like, okay, when people get home, we all set our phones by the door and we are cell phone free for, you know, X number of hours. And then you can have some time before bed and, really sort of the same general rules around parenting just applied to these sort of contexts mm -hmm. what i'm hearing anyway we'll yeah 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 no i i i do wonder um if 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 some of it it somewhat seems like common sense but it can sometimes be really hard to just try to keep the lines of communication open with your child so that you can have uh really that, that they feel they feel that it's safe to tell you if, if something's going on and that they're being, that they're concerned about and, or if you observe some type of behavior mm -hmm. that you're concerned about, but you be, you could be 
could be wrong, you know, unless unless yeah. you have a dialogue, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think sometimes um, keeping those lines of communication can be seem so obvious, but yet be so difficult, you know, just the yeah. generational differences and and teens' desires of having uh, more autonomy and mm-hmm. and uh, and more freedom and 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 in a sense, um, you know, growing up through, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and things that, I mean, this is a, a, a nice, a, a sort of funny or ironic example. One of the things I love about um, my Instagram account, which there are a lot of things I don't like about it, but one of the things <laughs> I like about it is that yeah. I found some really wonderful parenting experts who are active posters on social media. And it, it's it's a really people have gotten really good at, at communicating some information in a really um, sort of, I think, uh, easy, easily digested, you know, quickly digested, pleasant way. And sort of one of the things I actually just read just a couple of days ago was helping parents reframe, you know, kids' desire for autonomy as this sort of negative um, experience, right? Like they're being disobedient or they're somehow being bad or what happened to my kid that used to do everything I said, you know, to do, or most of the time and really reframing this as like healthy, normal, positive development that kids want to take more autonomy in their lives and make more decisions and how like reframing it can be really healthy for parent child dynamics just to go like, Oh, I see what's happening. This is to be expected and it's good. It means I've given them some freedom to express themselves and, Um, you know, so anyway, I think it's, I think it's cool that, you know, it's harder with the more nuanced stuff online, especially with, um, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, social media accounts that are focused on mental health. It can be hard to be nuanced in those contexts, but I think can be really helpful too. Mm -hmm. One of the things you and I had talked about before was this sort of the, the annual physical and, and, and taking emphasis off of, um, I think there's a stat that it's like body mass I, I'm gonna get it wrong but but that that there's there's a there's a there's been a, um, sort of a, a standard you know mode of, of in these exams of of pointing out um, and and that you're suggesting that there's just take that out of the equation that they're you know healthy healthy can have lots of coming sh- different shapes and sizes you know absolutely it, yes. yeah <laughs> yeah talk about yeah. that a little bit yeah yeah, sure. So, um, and this this is this is really new territory for me. I mean, I most of my education and training was in the realm of both sort of disordered eating prevention and eating disorder treatment, as well as things like weight management and weight loss. And um, in the last several years, I've just I've just been regularly struck by the feeling and the observation that the extent to which we focus on weight in our country and world, frankly, as some proxy or indicator for health. um, And therefore we should be focusing on body size as a way to help people get healthier is actually really harmful for people. It really kind of perpetuates this overall belief that being sort of having a bigger body is, is bad and negative. And there's lots of judgments associated with that. Um, and, and we know that those types of judgments and those experiences with people actually lead to much higher risk for eating disorders. Um, and so as someone who sort of thinks about these things simultaneously, I just felt more and more strongly about 
like you said, removing BMI as much as possible from this equation, um, from this um, evaluation of health, right? And to focus on things that are actually much better predictors of health. So things like, you know, racism and discrimination and things like um, physical activity and eating and social support and loneliness, like loneliness is one of the biggest predictors of mortality um, in this mm. country. And, and yet in things like annual child wellness visits, BMI is often at the center of the conversation when it's above a certain, a certain number. Um, and, and the reality is, is that, I don't know if I shared this with you last time, but BMI was created a long time ago by a sociologist who simply studied and observed, you know, body body size variations in white European, mostly men, but certainly adults. And somehow this metric has just sort of followed us and then integrated itself into the um, the health system and the health promotion initiatives and programs we see all over the country, like in the YMCA's and whatnot. And um, BMI is actually not a good metric for uh, even body fat, which is linked to health, but certainly um, not health. Um, not like other things are like um, better, um, more biological indicators of things like diabetes risk, like maybe A1C or glucose or insulin or things like that. So um, we published a paper, my colleague and I, Liz Budd, about a year ago in the conversation that really like talked about this and really encouraging anywhere health promotion is happening to think, rethink talking so much and focusing so much on BMI um, and instead talking with everybody of all body sizes about their health and what they can do to help improve their health and how do we change environments and structures and systems that create better opportunities for health and not just like sort of beating over the head this idea that you need to lose weight or your body size needs to be smaller. And as a result of that piece, um, Pediatricians at Peace Health contacted us and said, you know, basically agreed, like, we feel the same way. We don't want to keep doing this. We see sort of the harm and the limitations of it. And like, but we're not quite sure, you know, what to do and how to do it. Um, can you help us? And so we've been meeting with them as well as other people um, here locally who do health promotion. We've been talking with people at some local nonprofits, teachers, principals, school nurses about, you know, what, what do you all need to feel empowered to kind of refocus, you know, how you're promoting health and then how can we make sure you, you get that. So some of that's been just having these conversations with people more formally um, and presenting kind of the research and the statistics and, some of it's practicing and learning a new language and a new way of talking about things. And so yeah. it's awesome. I mean, People we, are really motivated. I was going to say, you know, when we know throughout history, there've been, you know, there've been cycles of what was considered, um, you know, uh, beautiful that, that, you know, that, mm -hmm. that, 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 that thin has not always been in, <laughs> you know, um, mm -hmm. as, as, as an ideal. Um, but I also sure. think that uh, certainly there's a, maybe a dialogue that needs to go on with, um, uh, just the fashion and cosmetic industry. I mean, you know, um, I know Dove um, uh, did some a whole series of, of campaigns where they kind of, uh, you know, called one on themselves and really had, you know, had really kind of took a second look at, at just um, gender bias and this notion. There was one really famous campaign they did where they asked 
different people to um, run like a girl, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you ever saw that, but it was run did, like a girl. Yeah. And every, you know, every example, whether it was men or female, men or men or men or women, um, it was kind of prancy. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't intentional. It was all, it was just sort of this notion that somehow um, running like a girl was less than, um, and, and this is really interesting, particularly now that we're in an era where, uh, you know, we're, we're really kind of rethinking our common notions of, of gender and identity. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. a whole other conversation, but, but, yeah. um, just a really interesting time because I, I, I gotta think just thinking about my own mom and, and her relationship with, with my sister, um, a lot of it was a lot of the messages that she sent, um, were kind of based on. Um, the way her mother had interacted with her and, and, and her, I, my mom's ideals of what, mm-hmm. um, you know, what was um, attractive and the right weight and all that kind of stuff. And I think in hindsight, although she's no longer with us, um, she would um, take back <laughs> yeah. a lot of some of the things that, that she said to my sister mm-hmm. um, that, you know, that we witnessed. Because um, we just, are, we, we're realizing we just need to be a little bit more, um, inclusive of um of difference and and um than than we were it was such a rigid time um in the 20th century about what how you know what was acceptable and 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 some of that carries over um but then i also wonder about you know um uh and and i don't know that we even have time to kind of go into this but just ideals of feminist feminism you know and in terms of just having permission, I mean, there, you know, there was a there was a school of feminism, of feminists that 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 want to uh, own their sexuality and be more overt and and all of that. And it, it so there's a lot of tension in you know, that know. As, as as for you know, I think it must be so hard. I mean, I always thought it was hard to be a guy, but for women also, mm-hmm. is there's still you know, there's a whole thing of like, can you have it all? Can you have a child and a career? And can you, you know? Can, <laughs> All, all, all of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought this up. I think this is fascinating and so complicated. And I, I yeah. am still sorting through in my own brain how I feel about some of this or, or, or rather how I personally feel about this, but then professionally how I feel about this too. And yeah, and I, it's, it parallels a lot of social movements in the past where people who've been minoritized or or sort of made to feel lesser than have re reclaimed um you know whether it be language or um ways of being to to empower themselves right to say well those words you use to hurt and well now i'm using them and we are using them and um sort of it, it being yeah a, a movement towards empowerment and reclaiming that power and we see this so I definitely see this happening in this area of um, sort of body image and sexuality and femininity and where um, women are saying, you know, don't objectify me, don't sexualize me, don't hold me to your, you know, body standards. Um, and then uh, using those things, being very, very sexual, wearing, you know, as as much or as little clothing as they want and sort of posting these things on social media on a regular basis and really clearly finding empowerment through through those platforms and um 
and and yeah, so it's just I think I'm seeing what you're describing, and and I'll be curious to see how that progresses and changes over over time, too. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thank you, Nicole. This has been a wonderful conversation, as I knew that it would be. I, I want to um, point folks to the fact that we had worked together on a on a, a video uh, resource for teachers. Um, and so we'll put in the show notes, but there's a, if you go to socialmediamindfulness.org, there's actually a lesson plan there and a video where you're featured and some links to some of your publications and things like that, which we um, are, and we're letting the world know about those things. So, so thank you for that. And it's always nice to spend time with you and um, I'll, I'll see you around campus. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for doing what you're doing. And I appreciate you putting a spotlight on, on some of these things and everything else you're doing too. How to Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com.